how the January 6th panel relates to the war in Ukraine, and the elites admit that we don't like them. I have the audio to prove it. You're listening to the Propaganda Report's Drive Time News Blast. I am Brad Binkley. A couple of quick announcements before we dive in. This Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I will be doing a Disappearing Patron Party with a special guest. Disappearing Patron Parties, for those of you who have not attended one, are the monthly virtual parties that we do where we drink, interact live, and let our hair down a little bit, have some fun, which is exactly why the video disappears after the party. If you want to attend that, join the appropriate tier at Patreon at patreon.com slash propaganda report before Friday and have some drinks and party with us. Also, I will be picking a date for this month's Zoom roundtable this week as well. And I'm behind on the shout outs, but we'll be catching up on those this week and next week. Thank you all again for all the support that you've given me, the wonderful messages and just... Being cool, I've been getting my my feet back underneath underneath me after a rough couple of months. Okay, top story today is part two of the new primetime slash daytime drama series, the January 6th hearings. I'm not going to say a whole lot about this, but I will touch on it a little bit. This is the second in a series of hearings put on by the January 6th committee. This one was held during the day. The first one was held in primetime. This one and the three after are the ones that are going to be the daytime showcases. And then they're bookending the thing with a closing primetime finale event, which one can only assume will be headlined by Adam Schiff publicly flating himself. Because what better way to close out a grand circle, Jay, than with a feat of acrobatics? Now, I have watched some of the hearings, and I'll give you some of my thoughts without going too in-depth. But first, let's hear what the goal of the committee is, as stated by the Brian Stelter of Late Night, Stephen Colbert. We've heard many of these details before, but it made my heart well with gratitude to see the committee weave them together in a compelling case that January 6th was not a spontaneous gathering of vape-fueled neo-knuckleheads that got out of control. It was, in fact, an attack premeditated by the President of the United States to prevent the peaceful transfer of power for the first time in our nation's history. So there's Stelter Colbert's expression of the goal. Let's hear how Jimmy Kimmel states the goal of the committee. Brutal, damning, brazenly un-American portrait of a seditious president in his attempt to overthrow the very concept of democracy. That sounds a little sensational. These guys are comedians. Let's leave it to the professionals and see how committee chairman Benny Thompson characterized what the purpose of this whole thing is. Donald Trump was at the center of this conspiracy. And ultimately, Donald Trump, the president of the United States, spurred a mob of domestic enemies of the Constitution to march down the Capitol and subvert American democracy. Any legal jargon you hear about seditious conspiracy, obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the United States, boils down to this. January 6th was the culmination of an attempted coup, a brazen attempt, as one rioter put it shortly after January 6th, to overthrow the government. The violence was no accident. It represents Senate Trump's last stand, most desperate chance to halt the transfer of power. I wonder who comes up with these scripts, the late night show host or the Congressional Committee, because they sound pretty much the same to me. Any legal jargon you hear about seditious conspiracy obstruction, conspiracy to defraud, boils down to a coup. 
they're not proving a legal case here. That's not how real justice works. It doesn't start with the judge saying, hey, look, any legal jargon you might hear about first-degree robbery, abduction, assault with a deadly weapon, what the defendant did boils down to murder. The defendant murdered somebody. That, that's not how real justice is sought in this country, but we all know that real justice is not what they're after here. We know that this is narrative warfare and that the fundamental principle of narrative warfare is that truth is unimportant. It's the meaning that is important. And they're really hoping to hammer home that meaning here, that meaning, which is, you know, well, I'll let Benny tell you what the meaning is with his little closing part of his opening statement here. January 6th and the lies that led to insurrection have put two and a half centuries of constitutional democracy at risk. There's the meaning. There's the overarching appeal there that January 6th has put two and a half centuries of constitutional democracy at risk. Democracy is under threat by Donald Trump still because he could run again. His supporters are still out there. You know who else democracy is under threat by? Vladimir Putin. His invasion of Ukraine has put democracy under threat worldwide. That's the narrative anyway. That's what Volodymyr Zelensky says every time he wears that army green shirt and makes an appeal for billions of dollars worth of money and weapons. I mean, that's why we give Ukraine money and weapons. We hear it on all the think tanks. We hear the president say it. It's not for Ukraine. It's for democracy. Putin threatens it worldwide. Trump threatens it at home. Trump is the domestic face of the global threat to democracy. If we're fighting against Russia, the West is in a proxy war against Russia for the sake of democracy. Would they not also fight against Trump and his followers for the sake of democracy if it's being threatened here? Would they not get classified as one and the same as Russia, as they have been for the past six years? This is about more than just preventing Trump from running and more than just dividing the country. This is yet another attempt to paint Trump and those who support him as no different than who they deem to be the global threat to democracy, which is Russia. This is another move to blur or eliminate the lines between domestic terrorism and foreign terrorism. But I don't think it's going to work. It's too stupid. The same people who are following this blow by blow and are super into it, they're the same people who probably bought a bound copy of the Mueller report from Amazon so they could frame it and put it up on their wall. This whole thing is too stupid and is targeting too small of the population, I believe. They want to broaden it with the way they're going primetime. They're trying to tease it out like a miniseries, but it's just the whole thing is too stupid. Look at what they're trying to prove here. They're trying to prove that Trump is guilty of something. Sedition, insurrection, a coup of putting 250 years of democracy at risk. They want to prove he's guilty of a bunch of things that they haven't actually proven happened. You can't prove someone's guilty of something that you haven't proven has happened. That's like trying to prove someone's guilty of making Brian Stelter manly. That hasn't happened. You can't do it. So they had these grand opening statements and they had Cheney's daughter come up every five minutes. Cheney's daughter, they just love her now. Hated her before, love her now. You'll see that with everybody who they rely on for evidence here. They used to hate them. Used to be the least trustworthy people in the world. Now they're the most trustworthy people in the world, and they love them all. This is how they're proving their case here. CNN says, The House Committee investigating the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol detailed Monday how those around then-President Donald Trump told him he lost the 2020 election, but he refused to listen. 
turning instead to his attorney, Rudy Giuliani, to embrace false claims that the election was stolen. That's it. That basically sums up their findings today, or what they communicated today anyway. That's how the committee knows that Trump knew that he lost, is because the people around him told him he lost, except for drunk Rudy Giuliani. And that's how they're referring to Giuliani in the news today, in the headlines. Headlines say stuff like, Trump embraced election lie from likely drunk Giuliani. Now, I don't know if this is a one-time incident or they're just assuming he's an alcoholic, but that's what the headlines are saying today. This whole thing is a show trial. It's hard to pay attention to. It's hard to watch, but it's in our face. It's really hard to take seriously, too, when none of the people being cited as credible sources have done any of the work that the investigative work that Garland Favrito of Voter GA has done. If you want to hear someone who has actually done tons of work, gotten railroaded repeatedly and still uncovered discrepancies in vote counts that no one on either side disagrees with, then go watch his presentations on Rumble. They're not flashy. They're not January 6th committee, but he actually gets down to the nitty gritty of what's going on. And he's done more work on that than probably anybody in the country. His Rumble page is rumble.com slash user slash voter GA. Enough of that. Okay. Now I want to talk about the great narrative. Klaus Schwab's the great narrative because it's highly relevant to what we're seeing all in the news today. Everything that's going on. And I reference a number of clips that I heard in a couple of discussions that I realized that I have not shared with you all. And I'd like to share some of them with you today. There was a two-day event titled The Great Narrative put on by the World Economic Forum back in November of last year, 2021. It hasn't been circulated very much because it's not on YouTube. It's only on their website. At least it was last I checked. And you got to kind of find it. This panel discussion that I'm going to be playing some clips for you all from is called The Great Narrative, A Call to Action. I like to look at the news through a lens of how does it relate to the Great Reset? And I find that asking that question, it usually turns up some sort of link to it, especially with these virtue signaling corporations, which almost always links to ESG standard Great Reset type stuff. So with that said, I want to go through some of this stuff because it definitely relates to what's going on right now. And I think you will see that pretty obviously. Okay, so the Great Narrative, according to the World Economic Forum website, says the Great Narrative shows what the way forward could be and what the role of cooperation, innovation, morality, public policies, and businesses can be. Basically, they link together all of those issues that they are propagating all the time into one grand narrative to push forward with the Great Reset. That is their hope anyway. This first clip is Klaus himself giving his little introduction that just gives you some insight into where his mind is and the way he views this conversation they're about to have. What pleasure to be together again and to design the future. We are here to develop the great narrative, a story for the future. I don't know if I've ever heard anybody say the word pleasure in a more creepy way than just now when Klaus Schwab said pleasure. This next clip is the first question that he poses to the panel. He's asking about what trends that they see moving forward and shaping this great narrative. I'm going to leave the question in, and the person he's talking to is Freika Hiemann, 
Kind of looks like it says Frika Hyman, but I know that's not how you say her name. She is the co-founder of Quantum Delta NL, the foundation that runs the Dutch National Quantum Initiative. And I think you'll find what she has to say about the future of technology and biology. Interesting. Short but sweet. We do not know. We cannot. We can imagine this new world. But we cannot, let's say, describe this new world in all the details. But we can see certain trends. So, um, Freike, what, what trends do you see uh, in shaping this new world? We're getting into the era of really engineering uh, DNA uh, and also personalized medicine. Obviously, that wasn't the whole clip. I edited it down to the most relevant portion there. You'll. In these clips, I did that because there's a lot of meandering and there's a lot of microphone shifting in them. So I do cut it down from the question to the relevant portion of the answer. But this chick works with supercomputers, massive data transfers. She's the metaverse chick on the panel, as well as transhumanist, as you can see there, as she said that we're getting down to the era of engineering DNA and personalized medicine. Now, personalized medicine is something that they talk about all the time with mRNA. That's the one they've been testing on humanity, uh, using us as guinea pigs to experiment with. All right, the next question is about trends we see in the future when it comes to cooperation. This starts to speak to the trust aspect that I've been talking to y'all about, how Davos was all about rebuilding trust in the influential institutions because the public does not trust the elites anymore, something that they acknowledge here. You know what? I'm going to start by playing you just a brief clip of them admitting that. Then we'll go back to this clip. Here's Nari Woods, who is the person who created the Global Economic Governance Program at the University of Oxford, admitting what we already knew. You know, the Edelman survey showed us that the good news is the elite across the world trust each other more and more. So we can come together and design and do beautiful things together. The bad news is that in every single country they were polling, the majority of people trusted that elite less. So we can lead, but if people aren't following, we're not going to, to get to where we want to go. And that's exactly right. They can lead, but if the people aren't following, they are not going to get to where they want to go. That, to me, is a hopeful message because we hear the media all the time speaking through a point of view that makes it seem as though we are in the minority, that makes it seem as though the elites, so to speak, they've won the influence. They, they've got most of the public, but they do not. What we get from the media is we get the minority opinion, but it's projected the loudest, it's projected the widest, so it seems otherwise. The reality is that the majority opinion is somewhat, I wouldn't call it silent, but it's definitely not going out through the mainstream media. And they know this for a fact, which is why they are spending a lot of their effort on trying to rebuild trust. And this woman throughout this panel discussion talks about a lot of the ways to rebuild that trust and how she thinks it can be done or should be done. And Klaus asked her about that global cooperation. And she speaks, she speaks to the trust factor again in this next clip in her answer to that question. Without, let's say, um, cooperation um, with uh, governments and so on, we will not make progress. But what, what trends do you foresee? We have to invest in social capital. I think what we've all learned this last two years 
is that I'm told there's a good reason why Zoom does not bond people. You can do transactions on Zoom, but it doesn't bond you because you're not sharing the same immediate experience of sound, of smell, of being in the same room as some of us are here in Dubai. So think about the ways that communities used to share experience by going to school together, by going to the park together to play football, going to the public library, uh, sharing, doing compulsory military service together. So many of those are gone. They've been fragmented. We live in societies, we call them societies, but actually people are separate. And we now need to invest in the social capital that brings communities together, that gives them space to come together and to learn to trust each other. And that, to me, Klaus, is where the new politics will be born of. It'll be born, we can see that people don't trust national politicians very much in many countries, but they do trust local government. In a survey I did of British business, it was very interesting because although they didn't think that local government was necessarily competent, they trusted it more as a partner in enterprise. And I think we've got, we're going to have to build politics from the local up. And that's just my final point would be that to cooperate on these big global problems, we really need to do what governments are there to do. Why, why human beings even invented governments in the first place to help us to take action. And that means ensuring our governments have a positive mindset to get things done and the rest of society helping them to do that. It means using technology not as a magic bullet, but as a way to give real-time feedback constantly to the frontline government workers so they get better and better and more responsive at their job and are looked to society as people that get things done. And finally, on, on government, we need to come back to the local. We need to build trust at the local level and then let that trust in politics that actually does things for people percolate up into cooperation at the national level. So that's my scenario. So that's her scenario. Her scenario is a coup, is capturing the locales around the world and borrowing, using their trust since the elites are no longer trusted. They know they need to get to the people in the locales and they need to put their words in the mouths of the people who are already trusted by people who live in those areas. Now, that's what they're talking about, I believe, when she's talking about investing social capital, is investing in those local communities in a way where they can indoctrinate, propagandize the most influential people, the most influential TikToker, the most whoever, for whatever group, and then those people who already have that trust, who are not tainted by the label of elite, can then spread the elite message through the locales, and the people there can think that it's grassroots, that it came from them and it wasn't pushed from the top down, which it absolutely would be pushed from the top down. She said a lot of other stuff in that clip, too. She said, the new politics is going to be born by investing in social capital. Yeah, that's, that's what she's talking about there. And that's going to be going to the locales and building up from the bottom. And she also said that we don't have connections through Zoom, that we don't do compulsory military anymore. We don't go we're not in the same room anymore we don't hear the same sounds smell the same smells connect that with the other lady who's a metaverse lady and what can you do with the metaverse if you get it fully functional well you can sort of hear the same sounds you can sort of smell the same smells once you get all the haptic stuff up and working which as i said they are dripping 
They're giving people the sensation of having a spider drip poison on their lips through a VR device. It's something they're doing right now. So they're working on stuff like this. I believe that's what she means when she says we need to get people together again. Yes, they want them in the locales, but I think they want them more inside the virtual world because then they can do that real-time data collection that she's talking about for the frontline workers so they can update things real-time. I mean, that's that's constant 24-7 data collection. How are you going to do that? You're going to do that by having a smart device on or being in some sort of virtual world. This woman says a lot of things that are downright shocking throughout this panel. The next clip, we have Fika Hyman, as I like to call her, chiming in on the the previous clip. She wants to comment on what was said in the previous clip about locales. Uh, I would like to uh, react to the local side of things that was mentioned before. Uh, And I would like to use an analogy from uh, quantum physics. So in a classical world, in uh, classical physics, uh, the world is ruled by the laws of Newton. Action is reaction in a local environment. And that leads to a chain of reaction. In quantum physics, there's non-locality. So an electron or a photon here can be entangled with an electron or a photon there. And if you do something here, it instantaneously affects the state of the electron there. And I think that's a good metaphor to look at uh, the challenge and also the opportunity we face. So on the one hand, we should go back to local. We should work on local communities, uh, produce our energy locally, uh, uh, yeah, less travel, build the trust in our institution locally. And on the other hand, we're interconnected. That There is non-locality with the internet and with AI and everything. All the technology is there. And we should harness that for it. There you go. We are not local. We don't have locales because of the internet. Because how interconnected we are. We can go to the metaverse. We don't have locales. Yes, we need to build trust in the locales technically because we need to win the people over. But really, we need to do it knowing that we don't have locales anymore because we're all part. We're all global citizens, essentially, if she had her way anyway. This next clip is Nero Woods again. And Klaus asks her what opportunities she sees in creating this great narrative as we come out of this crisis. I think the political dimension is uh, key. Um, Nairi, what do you see as the big opportunity? I think the big, the big opportunity is to, is to do a reset, really quite a fundamental reset. I think you know, the, the attempt to contain COVID has shown us that we that we have underestimated probably for you know three decades or so how important trust and belonging are within societies that we're going to face all kinds of risks in the next decade risks that we probably can't imagine today and our best chance as human beings as communities as nations as a world is to be cohesive enough among ourselves to affront those risks. Cooperatively, humans can can reach the moon and Mars. And yet, if we only consume and compete individually, we're going to destroy the planet. We're going to destroy any hope of curtailing pandemics. So to me, this has been a huge wake-up call, both the seriousness about climate and, and, and the response to COVID and our inability 
Tonight, more European countries are going into lockdown just when they thought that they had this pandemic nailed because guess what? You can't nail it without addressing it across the whole world. So we've got this incredible opportunity while we've got people's attention to reset and to say in a deep way, not how do we ensure that everybody has a chicken in the pot, but how do we ensure that people have some sense of belonging and of trust that if they make sacrifices to save the planet or to save their neighbors from COVID, then others will do the same. And that for me is why our, our politicians from local up to national and global have to really focus on that. They have to focus on their, goal, their role, not in being trusted themselves, but in creating the ecosystem in which communities can actually trust each other and then work to solve these challenges. Okay, there's a lot in that clip there. She wants everybody to stop worrying about having a chicken in their pot. And instead for us to put global concerns, a global community, over having a chicken in the pot. This is the same mentality that we see when we hear people say, you need to support Ukraine, you need to send more money, you need to support that regardless of how bad the economy is over here or how wrecked people's lives get because of what's going on. Yet people are not supposed to worry about that. They're still supposed to put the collective over the individual, even though they can't pay the bills or they can't put food on the table. You can't help anyone else if you don't have a chicken in the pot. To put the globe over having a chicken in the pot is essentially to die. Maybe that's what they want, or maybe they don't care. I think that some people would say that that's what they want. We can't help others until we help ourselves. That's the only thing that I do know. It's easy for them to make idiotic comments like this when they're up on their perches up there in Dubai or wherever the hell it is they said they were, when they've never been in a situation where they did not have a chicken in the pot. They want global cohesion, but they want it based on standards they set, values that they determine are moral, not yours. Yours are not allowed. You must be whatever the Borg is, assimilated. And she also wants to create an ecosystem where communities can build trust. She's all about building that trust in sneaky ways. She's saying this in a sophisticated way with her accent, using big words. But what she's saying is we need to manipulate people because we know they don't trust our asses anymore. So we need to get other people to do it for us. It sounds like maybe they want to place some of these global shapers around the planet to lead communities to follow their agenda, which they do. They spread these global shapers. They send them to certain parts of the world so that they can use their influence. If you have a politician who runs on a platform of, you don't need a chicken in your pot, the global community comes first, I wouldn't cast my vote for that person. We do need to pay attention to who we elect locally. The national votes, I'm pretty, pretty much on the rigged side of that, but I do think that the influence game is when public opinion is a certain way, they can get away with something that they might not otherwise can when it comes to the national elections. But the local stuff, I do think that people can have influence. And I do think that they put people there. We know Indivisible puts people in every single precinct in the country and they encourage them to get elected. We know that they nominate people like AOC to go run for office, encouraging them to get elected, funding them. This is kind of a George Soros scenario here they're talking about here. The getting winning over the trust of the local communities by investing in the social investments in it and i think probably spreading these global shapers there brad raffensperger i'm almost certain he's either cia agent or from a cia agent family you look into his background there is no background there it's weird 
something strange about him. He was planted here, and he's now in control of the elections, just like he was the previous one. Brad Raffensperger is the Georgia Secretary of State, the one who... He's a complete fraud. Watch Garland's videos again. I'm telling you, he's a complete fraud. And if you look into his background, you'll find absolutely nothing. I found everything I know about him from his parents' obituaries. That's it. It's the only information other than that he was born in Canada that I could find. They bring him up as a Georgia boy. Then they fund him, and they literally sent a bunch of Democrats. They drove a bunch of Democrats this primary, Republican primary, to crossover vote in Georgia to make sure that Brad Raffensperger wins. Stacey Abrams was personally driving Democrats. She might as well have been. Her foundation was funding this effort to get Democrats to vote for Raffensburg, as well as others. This is the type of stuff they do to co-opt the locales. And this is the type of stuff that she's talking about. Of course, nobody trusts Brad Raffensburg anymore, but they do want to get those people that you can trust, that are like you, that you do identify with in those positions of local power. So it seems like it's coming from you and not Klaus Schwab himself. All right. I got one more clip for you in which we're going to hear that same woman. We're going to hear Klaus ask her about what she would do if she had one wish, how she would solve the Facebook problem. And it really illustrates her authoritarian tendencies, I believe. But before we do that, I want to give you a quick preview of the XR, the exclusive content in which we will be playing some more of these clips from the World Economic Forum's panel on the Great Narrative. We will hear the panel talk about the obstacles that stand in the way of them putting this great narrative into action and manifesting their hoped for future. Some pretty interesting stuff. If you want to get that XR content, which we do drop every time that I do a DMB, go to Propaganda Report Patreon page at patreon.com slash propaganda report. You get the exclusive XR content with every tier, but there are also some other perks with each individual tier. So check all the tiers out. For instance, this upcoming Friday at 8 p.m., I will be doing a DPP, as mentioned earlier in the show, with a special guest. So if you want to join that, sign up. It'll be a lot of fun. All right. On to the final clip. Here's Klaus asking how to solve the Facebook problem. If you had a wish free to Facebook or to name other companies, what would it be? If I would, sorry? If you had a wish free to Facebook, what would it be? Yes, well, I would uh, set down uh, yeah, a framework of regulations that these companies should yeah, uh, like pledge to, like this is the way we're going to implement technology over the world, and not that they just do it and we are there to just... I think it could be expressed in a very short way instead of profit-oriented, human-centered. Exactly. Yeah. So, so. yeah. I thought that clip was interesting. For a couple of reasons, I thought she kind of caught herself when she was going to say, if you can see her reaction, her face, you can see that she catches herself. You can also hear it in her voice. She's basically going to say, I I wish that they would just do what we tell them to do and they just don't unleash this technology without our approval and they do it the way that we tell them to do it, which they're going to be modeling after the ESG standards. That's that's the whole purpose of the ESG standards is to get control over these corporations. And I'll bring a passage tomorrow where Klaus Schwab lays out exactly how to manipulate pressure and control these organizations using the ESG model, how he tries to do that anyway. And that kind of was the feel of that answer there. I just wish Facebook would do what I, I tell them to do, which I think that they I think they are in cooperation in many ways. I know that Facebook cooperates with plenty of governments. And what Klaus said there at the end, I thought was interesting too. He said a short way to express that 
what she was saying or trying to say is instead of profit-oriented, human-centered. It's a very nice-sounding thing there. But we hear right here what it actually means. It actually means you need to stop doing things without our permission. You need to stop developing technology. You need to stop researching things. You need to operate based on our value code, our rules. You run it by us first. This is authoritarian top-down control under the guise of instead of profit-centered, human-centered. This is the core of Klaus Schwab's message. And anytime you hear that, and other people will hear that, they'll say, oh, that sounds really nice. You know exactly what it is. It's a stripping away of your values, a stripping away of the rights of the individual, and trying to assimilate the globe to the Borg of Schwab, which isn't happening because we heard them admit earlier that people don't like the elites. They don't trust them. They have to come up with all these ways to try and con us into trusting them. It's not working. All right, let's go wrap it up for the day. Thank you all for listening. You guys can find your Drive Time News Blast every weekday afternoon at thepropreport.com or your favorite podcasting platform with the Propaganda Report podcast feed. We will talk to you all next time. Have a fantastic rest of your day.